Hey, you're listening to the RFWP Podcast with your host, Lois McNair and Emily Lewis, where you'll find candid conversations, transparent faith, encouragement, the occasional sarcasm, and a whole lot of grace as they share their walk with Jesus. Here's today's episode. Hi there, friend. Welcome to this week's episode of the RFWP, where we are seeking truth and finding God's heart. So today it is just me. I'm going to be introducing an interview for your listening pleasure. Uh, Lois and I both are feeling a little bit under the weather and have had some family things come up. We would love to ask you guys to partner with us in prayer over uh, Lois's grandbaby. You guys know, if you've been listening to the show for a long time, you know that her son Micah and daughter-in-law Haley are going to have a baby girl named Marlo in October. But Haley has some health complications that make the pregnancy high risk. And right now they are in the hospital facing um, a preeclampsia or toxemia diagnosis at 28 weeks. And baby is also growth restricted at this time. So they are working on getting diagnosis and um, care, checking Haley into the hospital until baby comes. So that's all happening. I'm recording this Thursday. Um, the 12th of August. So if you guys can be in prayer for them, that they would have wisdom in making decisions that um, God would sustain them with peace and that baby Marlo would be healthy and that Haley would stay healthy and um, everyone would have wisdom and comfort and guidance and health in this. We would greatly, greatly appreciate that. And before I set up the interview I have for you today, I wanted to quickly shout out our patrons on Patreon. Guys, we are so, so thankful for you. And we could not be doing what we're doing without you. We could not be transcribing the podcast and looking forward to getting some merch, graphic design stuff set up and, you know, all the things if it wasn't for you. So thank you ever so much. Also want to give a quick shout out to our amazing sponsor, Kendra over at Scripture Flips. If you haven't checked out Scripture Flips yet, I would love to describe them to you. Scripture Flips are a small convenient size that just make it perfect to keep God's word at your fingertips and with you on the go. Uh, every flip has a theme too. So all of the verses inside support that specific theme. So there is so much value in taking a specific theme, whatever maybe God's working on your heart with, maybe it's obedience, maybe it's focusing in on him, maybe it's focusing on who he says you are with the beloved flip. There's just so much value in taking one topic at a time in scripture and saturating our hearts with it. I finally put my flip in my beloved flip 
in our van so that it's with me all the time. Because you know, when you have those little moments of you're not sure what to fill them with and you end up scrolling on your phone or like, I don't know, do nothing. This is a great way to incorporate that into your life and make it so easy for you to reach for your scripture flip. Put it on your purse, put it on your keys, stash it in your car or leave it on your desk, wherever you're going to need a sweet reminder of the truth of God's word to carry you through your day. If you do not have your own scripture flip or you need to grab another focus, another topic of a scripture flip, go to scriptureflips.com and use the code RFWP20 to get 20% off of your order. And when you get your scripture flips in the mail, make sure you take a picture, tag us and show us how you choose to keep God's word with you all the time. Maybe you gift it to a friend. Take a picture, show us how you use your scripture flip. And without further ado, here is this week's guest as we talk about depolarization, unity, tribalism, all of these beautiful and powerful things coupled with practical tools. I know you're going to love today's episode and Lois and I will see you back next week together. Today, I get to sit down with Chelsea Andrews for a conversation around civil discourse and depolarization. And if those are new words to you, they are super fresh words to me within the last couple of years. So a little bit about Chelsea before we get started. She is a depolarization expert and a digital culture strategist. She enjoys analyzing emotions and behavior as they relate to interpersonal communication. In my opinion, she is a powerhouse at helping people with different vocabularies understand one another, even if they don't agree. Because she's helped me learn how to break out of my own tribe and box and speak and listen to people instead of like at people. So welcome to the show, Chelsea. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, I think you and I have a relationship through Instagram, so this is really exciting to be able to like see each other and chat and do the podcast this way. Um, to the to the point of the bio that you just gave for me, I love that you pulled that together. I feel like that's pieced from different places, so I feel like you did your homework. Awesome. Um, I think that there's a lot of buzzwords around the stuff we're going to talk about, and I'm somebody who this is a buzzword. We can even start here. Code switching, like which language and dialects, dialect is more applicable, um, do people use? Uh, So as you were just kind of like framing this stuff, I'd like to give it maybe an additional framing, not um, different, but just other words. To me, depolarization and civil discourse, and I'll elaborate on all this, this later, but it comes down to people exist in the world People have different opinions. People have different beliefs. And even if we think our belief or our opinion is right, we're inevitably going to bump into somebody who might disagree with us, define something differently. And like, how do we exist together in a way that is mutually respectful? That's kind of what everything boils down to that that I care about and that I invest my time into. Um, And then background context too. uh, I went to Liberty University. That's something that gets different reactions from different people. I feel differently about it often on different days too. Um, But I was my graduating senior class president there in 2015. 
28 years old. I'm from rural Indiana. Um, I now exist in a lot of spaces with people who are very, very progressive and talk a lot about like diversity, equity, inclusion stuff. I define myself as being conservative. So that's even something interesting we could get into. Mm -hmm. Um, But in my last job, I was a co-founder for a nonprofit startup, and we took almost 10,000 Christians over to to Israel, to Israel-Palestine, whatever wording we want to use, the Holy Land. Um, in about four years. So I specialize in Jewish Christian stuff and also this like, how do we talk to each other kind of stuff. Right. Which I really appreciate because I think you have said that polarization could be the thing of our era. Like if we look back and go, what was going on in the early 2000s, this would be the thing. Yeah. That's something where I think, and there's psychology terms and stuff for this. I don't care to label them now unless it's interesting, but there are ways to look back at how we remember and like the study of memory itself. And then also in retrospect, when we think about like generations and time spans. So when we look back at like the civil rights movement now, I feel like, and maybe others don't, but I feel like we often don't think about the people who were sitting in their living rooms and talking about the events that had happened like that day. And the different type of communities who are responding to all of that stuff that was going on. And it's a lot mm-hmm. harder to put yourself into that space. And this is, is is empathy right here of like, how is somebody else's lived reality? Like, what does it look like? And, and how do they feel? Not just like, where am I coming from? So that's something that I'm curious about right now is like, there's so much going on in the world. And like, how are we going to be talking about it in 40, 50 years? I'm very curious about that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because how does this impact like us inside of our communities and how does this impact outside of my community? Totally. So we don't, I don't know if we always think about, like you just said, even how it's impacting us right now, how people will perceive that even. Yeah. I I actually want to elaborate on that before we jump into whatever other point you'd like us to go into next. But perception is something that, that word particularly, it's interesting that you used it because I've been kind of simmering on it the last maybe week or two. And I, I feel like there's either this, this thought of, oh, well, you know, I can't control what other people think of me. And there's that kind of like individual, like liberty and like freedom kind of thought of, of what, whatever. But then there's also this thought of, okay, well, how do you treat someone? How do they feel like you treat them? What is their perspective of you? And not that we need to adjust ourselves for everyone else, but I think that perception between communities is a, like, you can pull all of that back into like peace mm-hmm. and like and equity and all of the other things that we're talking about. Right, right, right. So something you do so, so well is defining what you're talking about so that everyone feels welcome at the table and you're so inclusive, I think is the right word. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you go ahead and tell us what is civil discourse? What is depolarization? And we could even get into like confirmation bias within our own group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something I packaged this in different ways as I'm kind of coming to terms with like my own individual studies right now. So help reel me in, but I think I understand how I'd like to frame this now. In my mind, there are a lot of different like subcategories of depolarization. So if we think of depolarization as the umbrella, civil discourse is like the the tactical tools of how to like you, Emily, and I talk to each other. Like there's, there's psychology terms like mirroring. Am I repeating back to you what you just said to make sure that I understand it correctly? There's there's all these different things. But depolarization, I think, is this, this broader umbrella. And then under that, 
you have civil discourse, you have de-radicalization. That is an aspect of this. Mm. There's there's a lot of different subcategories that we could get into. Um, but depolarization pretty much to me, and I, I actually looked up on Google. I was like, I wonder if Emily's going to ask me to define this. And I like that you didn't particularly say like, what is the Marian Wolfsburg like, you know, definition of, of depolarization? <laughs> In my words, depolarization says like, like, let's think about like, like the root words, like poles, like polarity. There's like one extreme and there's another extreme and then there's everything in the middle. So depolarization says, what are the extremes that are going on? And you can apply this to like other things than just like what you and I are talking about too. We can have, uh, you can have polarization within um, a very like healthy environment on just like difference of opinions. It's just like, where are the poles? And I actually had wanted to bring up uh, the Overton window with you at some point in this conversation. And, and I opened saying that I'm not a big person on terms, but I think this one actually helps us understand depolarization. Go for it. So the Overton window, I'll explain it after this textbook definition, but I, I Googled it and it says, it's the range of policies politically acceptable to the mainstream population at a given time. So what that says is there's almost this like line segment where there's like a, an end point and a starting point. Um, and maybe maybe that's not even great framing. It's like, like a, one side and another side. In America, we often think of it as like, the progressives and the conservatives, or it's the, the right and the left or whatever interchangeable like wording you want to use there. But what is socially and politically normal in 2021 was not socially and politically normal in like the 1970s. Right. So when we look at depolarization in that framework, it, it's constantly adjusting, it's constantly changing, it's something new, there's never going to be just here is what it is, period. It's not like algebra. You don't get a math problem. There's always new theories and things being introduced. Mm -hmm. um, so in my mind, when I talk about depolarization, to kind of answer your question, there's a broad framework. There's a lot of things underneath it. And again, everything is talking about how do we interact with each other. So when we are coming to the table to talk about these conversations, I love that you don't just say, be nice to everybody, you know, because like, I feel like when I bring up this in my audience or something, just like be kind, but it's beyond that because you help people understand why do we think this way or why do we get stuck? So there are so many different reasons why um, in this, whether it's um, targeted ads and Facebook and the social dilemma stuff. Yeah. From where you sit, why is depolarization such an important topic right now? Great question. Um, and everything that I prepared to talk to you with, this is not one of those things. So I love the authenticity of just rolling with this conversation. In my mind, it comes down to, I don't want to say critical thinking because that can be, I think, just interpreted like rudely. Like you can look at someone and be like, you're not a critical thinker, like finger wiggle. That's just not nice like to say to anyone. <laughs> So I'm calling it more in my head pluralistic thinking, which is a, a form of logic and rhetoric. Um, so that is actually a textbook that you can look up. But in my mind, being able to hold two different like places of logic at the same time is not something that at least my background as, as someone who, again, like went to liberty, very conservative, like Christian evangelical culture, didn't teach me. It was absolute truth, moral relativism, and it was this almost perspective of if you don't believe the divine truth, nothing else that you're saying is going to be valid, moral, credible, and all of those things. So when you, you said like, how do we say this in a way that's not just like be nice? I could say, hi, I'm Chelsea. I believe in Jesus Christ. Like I am a, a born again like Christian. I could say all the things. Someone could walk into a room with me who is Muslim, 
maybe not religious at all, um, maybe white presenting, maybe not white presenting. And this is where like me hanging out in progressive spaces is coming out. But some person could walk up to me and if I look at them and I, my, my definition of nice might be very different than theirs. Mm-hmm. And I might come in with my Christian background and like very calm and like, you know, whatever language. And that might be very alarming to them again, because of perception. Like, I don't know what all the other Christians that that person has bumped into have treated them like, and maybe a word or a phrase that I'm using could be really hurtful in their eyes. So again, this is where there's that like dualistic logic. And it's not to say you have to concede to somebody else. You can still think your opinion is true, which is the confirmation bias. And we can get into all of that stuff too. I love that stuff. Um, But it's to say, how is someone else interpreting what is happening right now? And can I hold my interpretation and their interpretation at the same time? Mm-hmm. So right. nice is relative. Right. Because I, I think, especially in the Christian spaces, particularly the conservative Christian spaces that hold the Bible as their final authority, it seems to be like you can't have your perspective and there's a, an abrasion towards my truth, your truth, her truth, when we can actually learn from each other by saying, well, why does she think that's her truth? Why does... What gives her the authority to do yeah, that? Totally. Something that jumps out at me as you say that is that, I don't know, like we have to be able to bump into each other. And maybe that's me like harping on a point and I'll, I'll keep it short here. But if I have my absolute truth, which just being honest, I do. I have my things that I think are true and right. And I have reasons for those. And, and I'm someone who has dug deep and figured those out. I think that you are someone that has done that too. Just because mm-hmm. I've done that work on myself doesn't mean that I know the work that someone else has done on themselves and maybe they have, or maybe they haven't, but we still have to bump into each other. Right. (laughs) As somebody who grew up in like a legit echo chamber, it is so important to me now that we are bumping into other opinions and ideas. Can we go into maybe, I wasn't planning this, but a specific example of something that Christians say that is maybe abrasive to other people. Um, We can use this example or you can use your own. But Pharisee is tossed around a lot in Christian spaces as negative and rightly so kind of from the biblical perspective of somebody who is oppressing people with religion. Can we take a step back and realize that that might be offensive to another community? Yeah. Um, I know, and and put, tying in with this, and also not like I said in in the introduction that I specialize in Jewish Christian relations, and there is a very particular sensitivity that the and this is mainstream Jewish community. I'm not pulling out a, a particular denomination here, um, and that's our wording, not their wording for how they would define themselves. But to say a lot of at least American Jews, I can say it this way, feel like. Christians that come from conservative backgrounds, and again, they, they might not phrase it this way, but this is what my years have shown me. A lot of Jewish people in America will say, Christians talk about legalism and Christians like almost make fun of Jews. Like I've been in churches that do that. Like I'll, I'll give an actual anecdote. I was in a church in Chicago and I was really excited about the church. It's actually like a big name church, so I'm not going to label it. And the pastor had formerly been Catholic and he was up on the stage and he was talking about legalism, which cool. And he was talking about the Sabbath. And he said that for Jews, if you spit on the ground and step away, it's fine. It's chill. It's like no big deal. But if it's the Sabbath and if they spit on the ground and if they turn their foot on the ground, they are suddenly cultivating the earth, which is breaking a commandment, which is 
is it this whole thing? And he basically said it in a way that made the entire church laugh. So mm. when we talk about like Pharisees, like this is one of those things where like our context is not our own. Our context exists for other people in their context too. Mm-hmm. So I actually love that you highlighted that. I love that you just mentioned that like the context, it doesn't mean that we're wrong for using that term, but how we're framing it, totally. like, are we making a joke at someone else's expense or are we just using it within the context of our community? Absolutely. 100%. Moving on towards like, why does this matter within your like Christianity and your how you're representing yourself in the world. When we are inside our own group, you use a word called like tribalism. Mm-hmm. And how can we be aware when we're in that, like, I don't know, echo chamber or with lacking outside perspective? Totally. I think one way is to do a, like an actual physical, like turn your head kind of a thing. How often are you physically in proximity with someone who disagrees with you? Like if you're walking mm-hmm. into your church and everything you say, like you 100% agree with the pastor, you 100% agree with how everyone is responding to the pastor. If you 100% agree with everything that your parents are saying, if you're, if you're in this place of like not often questioning or challenging or bumping, not that everyone needs to challenge and question everything, but I think that is a, it's a clear way to figure out oh, I'm like, am I in an echo chamber right now? And you had mentioned confirmation bias before. So I'm just going to pull in some psychology lingo because I can and I like it. There's a guy Absolutely. named Daniel Kahneman. He's actually Israeli. Um, I think it was around the 70s. I'm pretty sure it was in the 70s. But he put out a lot of research um, in partnership with with another Israeli guy. But Kahneman is, is, is the big name. And all of his stuff was about heuristics and biases. And heuristics, most people don't use that word now. Biases, people will know once I explain it a little bit. Um, heuristics are like a mental shortcut. The the quick thing, if you Google it, that pops up is a rule of thumb. And the thought there is if your brain can't, like, can't spend a long time to figure out every single thing that you do as you navigate life. So that's where like assumptions can happen and like quick determinations can happen. And, and it's the whole thing. And there's, there's actually like a system one and a system two thinking and little psych heavy, but I think for anyone that's interested in this, I, I mentioned this to say there's places to, to go next and to explore. Jonathan Haidt is a name who's very, very popular right now. H-A-I-D-T um, is how you, is how you spell it. He has three books that are really great. Um, one particularly is called um, The Righteous Mind. I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I might mix his bylines, but I think it was The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And then another mm. book that he has talks about um, moral foundations and an American context of the left and the right. And he basically asserts Kahneman's research. So Jonathan Haidt is this like trendy, like I call him like a pop psychologist. He's on, um, he's on like the radio and he's on like Good Morning America. And like, if you look him up on you, he's, he's everywhere right now. He says, okay, Kahneman said there's like system one and system two, which is like your quick thinking and your, your slow thinking, but like very heady, very academic. Haidt says, think of an elephant. There's an elephant and there's a rider. The elephant are, are, is, is our emotional self. And the rider, which can like kick the elephant's ears if it's on top of the elephant, can like steer it. Um, that's our logic. So just because our logic is telling us something, that doesn't mean that our quick response is going to be around that. So it's this really interesting mm. situation there. And then to kind of close out, out this point, 
Kahneman's um, biases, you had mentioned confirmation bias. That's his most famous one. Most people, at least I, I'm asserting this, a, a lot of people, maybe I can say it that way in America, would know what confirmation bias is. Almost none of those people could name like what heuristics are or that they came from Kahneman. So all of that to say, when we talked about the echo chamber conversation, confirmation bias tells us the story, and this is my own Chelsea language, tells us the story of, I am going to self-affirm. And, and that in and of itself is kind of this, this weird place that people trip up around depolarization because I, the story that I tell myself as Chelsea is that I am a critical thinker. I like to hold different narratives. I'm a good person. I only do things that are going to be intentionally kind to others. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to mess up. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to bump into someone and say something insensitive or hurt someone's feelings or, or emotionally respond in a way that is not contained because I'm a human being. So those are the things I tell myself, but that's also confirmation bias. So if I can't recognize that not everything that I think is going to be absolutely correct or everything that I feel is going to be absolutely correct, we're kind of in a messy place. And that, to me, pulling all of this back to like the church is where I don't feel like the church is allowing people to do critical thinking, mm. this pluralistic thinking, especially conservative Christianity. And again, I'm speaking from an evangelical background. And then when we also say, okay, well, if we're not allowed to question and we're not allowed to hold like different perspectives and viewpoints or even entertain them, then is the church just not this confirmation bias, like feedback loop? And also who's making the decisions in the church? And are those people open to feedback or are those people all just like perpetuating something too? So this is a very like weird and interesting thing where we're like, yeah, these, these words sound great. Confirmation bias is bad, but it is actually really hard to figure out like if you are in a funnel or not. And again, all of that to say, if you can't hold multiple perspectives at one time, that's, I think, an indicator. Mm-hmm. I once heard a professor say about the Bible, because um, he wrote a book, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, and he said that we need to actually approach the Bible almost subjectively so that we can be objective about our subjectivity. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I actually like that a lot. And when I had mentioned before that I've taken a lot of Christians over to the Holy Land, that to me, like I've worked with Assyrians who are from Iraq. I've worked with Christians who are from Lebanon. I've worked with Christians who are like indigenous Christian communities in the Middle East. And for me to have brought thousands of, of American Christians with a Western context to the Middle East, one thing that baffled me in my earlier days was that a lot of non-denominational Christians that I was taking were looking at the churches in Israel and they were very like, I can say this now, I don't work for the company. I feel free to be able to speak this way. They were very snobby towards the churches. They were like, mm. well, this church has a lot of like iconography. This church is, you know, all of these things that I don't like. But like, where are we going to find a church that's a thousand years old that looks like a modern day gymnasium for your non-denom like hangout mm. spot? So this is this thing of like, Christians are so judgmental of each other. Each other. And then when we, when we look at like the global body of Christ, how often are we saying like, hey, Assyrians, like what perspective do you have that I'm not currently holding? Yeah, like never. Right. Seriously. So when we're in these constructs, how do we break out? Like mm -hmm. you said, turn our heads and then we're asking questions and realizing that our context is actually quite small. Yeah. And then we can move forward once we've recognized that we even have confirmation bias. Right. Even if we can't see it all, at least we can recognize and be aware that I'm viewing the world from a limited perspective. Yeah, my mind immediately jumps to 
academic language and then not after, my mind immediately jumps to like psychosocial treatments. So what that means is like, if someone goes into a therapy session, there, there are several different types of approaches a therapist might use with someone. Two examples that I like to use because I think they're easy to, to understand is DBT, D as in like, like your day-to-day life, like DBT, um, and then CBT, C as in Chelsea. So there's cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. And this is like my Chelsea definition, not textbook. But this basically says one approach, DBT, does not argue with the patient in, in the room or the, the person, if we want to call them not a patient. Um, so if someone walks in, they're talking to a therapist and DBT is the approach that is being used. The therapist is not going to challenge that person. They're going to affirm, recognize trauma, and they're, they're, they're there not in like a challenging role at all. CBT, though, the reason that I like this approach better, and this is how I frame all of my depolarization stuff, so I'll, I'll pull it back in a moment. CBT says it, it takes the approach of a person walks into a therapist's office, they sit down, they start talking to the therapist. The therapist is there to help that person realize what is going on in their head. So, for example, someone might say, um, just speaking quickly within like free thought, this is like all talk therapy, they're working with a therapist and they might say, well, this morning I woke up and I'm making this up off the top of my head, but this morning I woke up and I bumped into this guy at the gas station and he was the biggest jerk in the world and you know, go on with the story. The therapist then might say, okay, well, can I, can I repeat back to you what I heard from what you said? Or they'll, they'll have some sort of framing there. And then they'll say, so you went to the gas station this morning and some person was a jerk. And because they were a jerk because whatever example I might have given. And that is mirroring, saying the exact same thing back. And then that person doing cognitive behavioral therapy can say, well, they weren't a jerk. And maybe I called them a cuss word, and a cuss word instead of a jerk. Like they, they weren't that. You know, they were actually this. And you give them this moment of being able to re-clarify what they mean, being able to hear, externalize what was in their mind that they just said out quickly. So CBT does this approach of, of giving the person the opportunity to grow and reflect and do it in a safe space where no one is trying to catch them or prove them that they're wrong. And then you can also like validate and stuff too. But CBT, I just think is such a, such a healthy approach. And the reason that I apply that approach to all of the framing that I do around um, de-radicalization, depolarization, like, like uh, civil dis, like all of these things is to say, when I'm talking to somebody in a conversation and maybe we seriously disagree with each other, like vehemently even. Like I'm a, I'm a pro-lifer and I talk to a lot of pro-choicers. And I won't get too deep into that because I know that's a triggering thing for a lot of people. But if I'm talking to a pro-choicer, they might say something challenging. My response back to them might be, hi, friend. We'll say their name's Ashley. I'm making up a name. Like, hey, Ashley, um, when you talk about being pro-choice, I noticed that you use these words. Um, I might not use those same words. Can you tell me why those are the words that you chose? Mm-hmm. None of that that I just said is conceding any ground at all. It is asking that person to define their own terms, to associate their own relationship with the conversation. It is giving them an opportunity in a safe environment to answer me authentically how they want to. And none of that mm-hmm. is me trying to prove to them that they're wrong, catch them in them doing something morally unethical, like any of that. So that's why, again, like CBT to me is just a really healthy framework for people to use. I think that that example is really interesting when we talk about therapy and you said like a non-threatening space. It's just a space for somebody to say something and have repeated back to them. 
And then what comes up to me when you're talking about the pro-life versus pro-choice, when our position on something is questioned, we can feel challenged and threatened. Absolutely. Can you talk about that? Yes, I can. Okay. So identity, we're getting into to some identity stuff. So and I'm just going to name something because I want to. I feel like a lot of conservative Christians hear identity and then we hear identity politics and we start hearing these phrases and we're like, no, that's a lefty thing. I don't want to touch that. And there's a lot of depth and things I could say to, to make that both credible and challenge, like the phrasing that I just did. But um, all of that to say, there's, there's, I, de- I define identity as the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Again, I tell myself I'm a nice person. I tell myself all all of these affirming things. The way that someone else might define me and like my identity factors, quote unquote, might have a lot of words that have very negative connotations because those are the connotations, like those those are the words and the experiences that they have with people like me. So when we we talk about feeling threatened, the second that someone, like I'm I'm a pro-lifer, the second that a pro-choicer is looking at me and making an assumption or making a judgment call, or, or speaking into the things that, that I have told myself are true and honest and moral and, and I have values for why I think these things, that person is functionally challenging my identity. That person is saying, you, Chelsea, don't think women have a right to choose. You, Chelsea, don't think like all, all of these things, again, not getting too deep into that. But I don't want my friends to think bad things of me because I don't think bad things of me. And I think that I have good reasons for thinking what I do. And at the same time, I have to know that my pro-choice friends also have reasons for thinking what they do, logic for thinking what they do, and experiences for thinking what they do. And I can still think that I'm more right than them and have a civilized conversation with them. But yes, being feeling threatened is what happens when we're in a challenging conversation. And when we were just talking about like a safe space, this pulls everything back on the onus of the person who is wanting to have a hard conversation or is wanting to explore this stuff. This is the really hard, not comfortable reality is it's not going to feel good. And it is going to feel really hard and is entirely, and this is a personal opinion, others might disagree with me. As long as you are in a space where you're not with someone who is going to like physically, emotionally harm you, like I'm acknowledging all those like safety importances too. But if you're in like a good faith conversation with someone and it's just like a really hard conversation, you don't know how to do it. That's the point where it is my responsibility. So if I'm talking to a pro-choicer and they become emotive, like they become reactionary, it is my job to make them feel like I'm sitting on the same side of the table as them. Some negotiation theory stuff here is that we need to make sure that people see a future that is collaborative in nature. And if I'm talking to a pro-choicer as a pro-lifer and we can't end the conversation with mutual respect in, in, in a world where we could somehow talk to each other again collaboratively, then I failed at doing the conversation that I was trying to do. And not every conversation mm. has to be the end goal. But I know for for a fact that oftentimes I need to have several conversations with someone who thinks differently than me before then I can assert my point because, and this is also negotiation theory, people need to feel heard before they will listen. And that is so hard Mm. when we want to express ourselves, but it is like tactical, it is smart, it is strategic to say, I'm going to sit this out for a little bit and I'm just going to be here and I'm going to listen authentically and then when I do speak later, I will be heard more. Mm-hmm. One of the first things I re- that stands out to me as one of the first things that I remember you saying uh, when I started following you, just when we're talking about that, uh, what is your final authority? What is your basis for what you're basing 
or what's the foundation for what you're basing your opinion on? And then, like you said, somebody else can be moral without agreeing with me. And that's so hard when we've come to these conclusions and we've wrestled and somebody disagrees with us and we're like, you can't possibly be right. So there's actually, I think, a really great anecdote that is consistent with everything else we've been talking about with like the pro-life or pro-choice like paradigm. And for me, that's adoption reform. And to to make it very succinct, it is difficult for non-Christians in America to find adoption agencies where they can adopt a child. And I have friends who are Mm. Jewish, maybe religious, maybe not. um, And it's hard for them to be able to adopt a child. I have friends who are people in, and this will be hard for the conservative Christians listening, but I have friends who are in the LGBTQ community, have been married for like, someone that comes to mind has been married to their partner for 20 years. And not to jump into that, because I know that's an entirely like, like that's, that's a hard space to be in. But these people who in my mind are in loving relationships, they are healthy, they have an income that, that makes it, like, all of the things are there minus maybe the faith part. They might look at me as the Christian and say, why can't I adopt a child? I really want, like, we want to be able to give a child a good home. And to them, they're trying to do something that is moral, that is fulfilling, that is all of these things. And they look at me as the Christian and they're like, well, you're just being judgmental because you think I don't believe in God. And now everything else that I do is not up to your par. So that's like a a tangible point where our morals might be different and we're judging each other. And yet all of us, and I, I, again, I'm a pro-lifer saying this, I want babies to be adopted. And yet this is where I will give credibility to my pro-choice friends where they say, well, you guys are just pro-birth and that's a whole thing. But just to highlight that as like where they might go in their mind, consistent life is something that I am very big on. And for me, consistent life means that I, again, have to be able to jump out of my own logic points because the world is a big world. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Those examples are really hard. I think because they call us, they almost, I can't think of another term, but they almost call us on the carpet. Like, yeah, here, now you have to wrestle with this. Yeah. And that's, that's a thing of, um, forced empathy is a a phrase there. I talked about empathy a little bit earlier. So empathy being able meaning just being able to jump into someone else's mindset, experience, reality, insert other words, forced empathy is where you say now solve their problem. Or now Mm. how they would act in their own framework. So if you and I am putting an assumption on you, you don't have to confirm this or not, but like as pro-lifers, am I able to jump into a pro-choice person's mindset in good faith and also imagine the way that they, their brain does their logic? I don't think Christians do that really. Mm -mm. And it comes back to recognizing our own angle that we're viewing things at and saying this, while I believe this is the right conclusion, let me figure out how you reached yours rather than assuming I know how you reached your conclusion. Totally. Tribalism actually comes to mind now as a maybe transition topic. Is it okay if I jump us there? Yeah, go ahead. So I think since we have this background that we've talked about that kind of covers the CBT approach of like safe environments for people to authentically show up and all that. We've talked about empathy. We've talked a little bit about like the heuristics and biases with, um, with Daniel Kahneman. Um, We've kind of given this framework. So tribalism, it actually, this is kind of fun, I think, because there's really easy ways to explain it. And people make this out to be something that's really, really complicated. There, 
how do I want to frame this? If you, Emily, and I are placed into a room together, let's say it's like a it's a it's a big room. Let's let's say we're in Walmart. No one else is in Walmart. You and I get dropped off into Walmart. Maybe we know each other is there. Maybe we don't. I don't know. Then say five people are placed with me in Walmart and they're told you're in like Chelsea's like community and five people are placed with you. After like a year long time, we're going to have different cultures. We're going to have different things that we care about. And there's a study, I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but they did this. Um, there's actually a lot of counterpoints to this. I'm still mentioning it anyway. There's a study that was done where kids were put out into the woods and they basically had these kids create cultures and like a, almost like a little government system. They were out camping and then the kids bump into each other and like what happens? And there's there's a whole lot that's asserted in that study that I don't want to bring to this conversation. But all of that to say tribalism is it's the ways that um, I confirm community. And this is my own Chelsea definition I'm making up off the top of my head right now, because again, I like authentic conversations. It's the way that like I create community. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll do another book definition because nothing is jumping to the top of my mind. There is a book that um, I think that it's negotiating the non-negotiable with Daniel Shapiro. It might be off there, but it's a negotiation book. And this guy opens up the book and he said, he, he makes it very dramatic and it's exciting. Like the way he narrates is really fun. And he says, I was at this like international conference and there's like all these big scholars and impressive people who are there. And I was asked to facilitate a room with everyone on tribalism. It's like, okay. So then these people come in and they sit down and this guy gets up in front of the room and no one really knows like what they're doing there, but they were told to go there. And this guy says, he creates this framework and he says, you guys are all at circle tables. Everyone in the room are at circle tables. Boom, there's an alien invasion. And then this person walks in in a funny outfit and they're pretending to be a little alien just to be like an icebreaker and they get everyone to laugh. And the guy who is running the room then says, all right, well, aliens are going to blow up Earth unless we can have one table create a culture and a society that everyone else agrees with. So humanity is now on y'all. So one table is really focused on like equity and inclusion. Another table is really focused on like religion. Another table is really focused on all of these different things. And his end point is to say within like an hour of him telling people, or maybe it was 15 minutes, I don't know, but within a, a very condensed time frame, these people started yelling at each other and screaming at each other. And it was like, because it was a high, like tense situation, people were getting really passionate about it. That's tribalism. Like one table versus another table. It can be, I like Pepsi and you like Coke. It can be this, it can be that. But in America where it gets to be, like scary and something that really needs attention. And I, I use those words intentionally. When we place so much of our identity in being a Republican and in being a Democrat and judging the other person and not being able to do that forced empathy, that critical thinking, that 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 understanding of where they're coming from, that's where we get into an unhealthy place. So tribalism is just like a big word that means we all like siphon off, but like can tribes coexist? And that's where there's a lot of, of research around like in-group and out-group work. So something that I noticed, and I'll, I'll close out maybe with this in a moment, but something that I started noticing early on in, in my last job that I was in, I took Christians to Jewish conferences that had gone over to Israel with me. And I escorted them. I guided them through. I was very big into like acclimating and culture and all of that. But usually I would bring the only Christians or non-Jews that were at a conference. When I did that, all of a sudden these, these Christians were like, oh my gosh, I've never been a minority before. Or, oh my gosh, I've never like existed in a space where like everyone else is something that I am not. That's in group and out group. That's also tribalism. So 
that's all of that. Okay. Can you talk a little bit more about in-group and out-group? That was really interesting. So like when we're in the religious context, in-group being the group that we most align with and out-group would be anyone that disagrees with something that we hold as a core value. Um, I'm going to use a very personal example because I feel comfortable enough with you to do that. Today, my college that I went to, Liberty University, was in like a headline in the New York Times, not bringing up all of that stuff. Like that's not the point, but they were in like a New York Times headline. I have a lot of very difficult feelings about the school that I went to based on like the institution, not the mission, based on the people, not the goal. I can put it that Mm -hmm. way. And when we look at like in-group, out-group, I am someone who still is holding on to my evangelical title. I don't want to be ex-evangelical. I don't want to leave my denomination. I'd rather reform it from within. And if I start talking about my school in a way where I'm also not cementing myself in with the evangelical community, all the people that are that are, I'm in community with who are evangelicals are just going to think that I'm always trash-talking our denomination and they're going to think that I'm either turning into like an apostate, a traitor, someone who's not like fam, team, crew, like whatever word we want to use. So when we say like in-group, out-group, I think that criticism that is constructive goes way further when you are inside of a community versus outside. So if I all of a sudden decided, oh, I'm Chelsea, I'm like mad at my college, I'm ex-evangelical, which maybe I will do. I don't, I don't know. I don't plan to. But if that happens, I'm no longer going to be in-group. And that means that my voice is going to carry different weight. So there are a lot of in-group, out-group studies that came out of like the civil rights movement. I haven't seen actually none that are related to the stuff that we are talking about. That is like something that I would like to develop out someday. Um, But a lot of in-group, out-group stuff goes back to to then, but we can apply it to anything. So what do you do then if you're perceived as out-group, but you you identify as in-group? Because that would be a lot of, especially the spaces I grew up in, like I'm perceived as like the enemy now, the outgroup. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the question that I'm wrestling through right now too. And like, there are, I, I'll, I will, and there are answers to to give you. Um, there's, I don't have the study off the top of my head, but there's some, some number that has been studied where affirmations versus challenging, like you need to cement yourself and affirm, like if you and I are in a conversation and every single time you and I speak to each other, all I'm doing is challenging you. You're not going to want to be in community with me. I'm just going to be like, again, threatening. I'm just going to be threatening you all the time. So if we want to be able to speak credibly about a community, we also need to cement that we belong in that community. And uh, a personality like tone that I am currently trying, I don't know how it'll go, but something that I'm trying is... I am growing into the place of not being insecure about challenging because that's really hard to do. And I'm more, I'm intentionally framing this growing into a place of saying other people don't get to tell me who I am. And also if I want to be in community with them, I need to appreciate how they see me. So that means that my language is I am absolutely a conservative Republican. I have spoken with Huckabee. I have given Ted Cruz's team tips for his presidential like launch. I can, I can do these things. And when I say those things, like you're nodding your head with me right now, as we can look at each other, I need to find those head nod points, whether they actually happen or not, but like within someone's mind, sure. I want to critique my community. They also need to be nodding their heads at me. Mm. Yeah. You just said that really, really well. Thank you. 
Because uh, that's the that's the fine line that can feel so exhausting to walk, especially as we begin practicing it. Like, how do I like hold space for who I am while holding space simultaneously for how you see me? Yeah, there's something yeah. that um. I'm pulling it out because I can. My my therapist, I just started seeing someone this week and I'm like really proud of that. She framed something to me and I don't want to, I'm, I'm going to misquote it because I didn't have like a pen and paper to write it down at the time when she said it, but it was something along the lines of identity and belonging being these two words that have a relationship with each other. And I have a friend who self-identifies as a democratic socialist. In my mind, like the furthest left you can go. She actually also went to Liberty. She's a social worker now. She was talking to me and and she framed it in a different way than I thought of it. And you can basically look at these two terms and, and I'm not an expert on this. This is just what I've like figured out from some friends within the last day of talking about it. There's, there's, you can have your belonging at the expense of your identity, or you can have your identity at the expense of belonging. And this key word there of belonging is what just humanity in general, whether an organized religion or not, is seeking and because I can assert this and I want to, this friend who is very, very, very left, who I love and adore, she, when she came on to my, I had a Facebook post about it and she said, um, she's like, I love that you post this question. For some people, belonging literally means life and death. Hmm. And to me at that point, I've heard a lot of people from the LGBTQ community who because of judgment, who because of hurt, there's also a lot of this with purity culture. There's this point where belonging can also hurt and be uncomfortable. So like at what point is our identity and like the words that we're holding on to the labels that we hold worth it almost. And these are all things people have to figure out for themselves. Mm-hmm. The belonging and identity, I think is a, is a really big part of, of all of this because depolarization is basically a question of what identities are you bringing and how are you bumping into other identities? And if your identity is, is wrapped up together with belonging, that's messy and complicated and people are human. Mm-hmm. So the other community that I seem to intersect with is like the deconstructing. I don't know if they're ex evangelical or not, but a lot of the complaints I see are around belonging, whether it be the LGBTQ community feeling like they can't belong, or if you have a disagreement, you can't belong. Mm-hmm. So that's a really interesting thing to think about when we're walking that line. Like this is what's most important to people. So making that space for them to feel like they belong, um, whether or not we agree. Yeah. And I'm going to touch on something political, but being mindful of like your platform and, and my voice and who might be listening. The last election that we just had, I feel like it is fair to say no matter who you voted for, people didn't feel like they belonged entirely. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's yeah. not everyone, but it's a lot of people. And that I think is a huge part of depolarization. Like the people keep saying, headlines keep saying our country is more polarized than it's ever been. And then I don't care to like mention that in like an existential way, but if our country is in this much of a, a hurt place, that means people are not feeling heard. And again, people need to feel heard first to then listen. People are not feeling heard. People are feeling hurt and people don't feel like they belong. And to me, this, this, this whole conversation you and I are having doesn't have to be like 
heavy psychology words and heavy negotiation words and whatever. It can just be like people loving people, which Christians are supposed to do anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So outside of like the one-on-one, because that would probably be the answer you would give, Mm -hmm. like the one-on-one listening, loving people. How can the church, like the greater evangelical church, do this, Mm -hmm. impact the change and make people not feel like they're outsiders for having a different lifestyle, making them feel welcome for voting for a different party. Um, I think when you had asked that, you said evangelical. Do you want me to answer to broader Christians or particularly to evangelical? Sure. Both? Both, maybe. Yeah. I have an entire rant that I will not let myself go down, but that I can try to summarize quickly. In my doing research on liberty, like my college... I have questioned so many things. And again, I was my class president. Like I I have all the things that I can say to cement myself in that community that I I don't care to spend time on right now, but I'm very deeply part of that community. And also a lot of research around the moral majority. Um, I'm going to quick framing on that. And this is my own Chelsea, like paraphrasing of it. I'm actually not even going to say this super sensitively. A whole bunch of really big televangelist white dude pastors came together in like the seventies and the eighties and Jerry Falwell senior who founded my college was the head of the moral majority. Like he founded it. And I know like I've actually talked to Newt Gingrich like in person, he was the old speaker of the house, like big deal for people that know politics, a bunch of these guys. And I know lots of people who are like children of these people even came together and said, how do we make the right, the party of religion? It was not like that before. And there's a lot of other contextual things that were going on. There's also a lot to say with like Nixon to Reagan to to all of these different people. There was definitely a trajectory that was happening before then, but there was a very clear distinction where all of a sudden the right was the religious party. And I think that that to me coming to like, what can the church do better? Maybe not framing everyone who doesn't agree with us as being someone who is unethical, immoral, and bad. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's kind of like a fluffy mm-hmm. thing to say, but it's true. And like, I bump spaces with the people who like run this stuff. And a lot of the people who run this stuff are not the people who are interested in doing the stuff that you and I are talking about. So to me, I, we can say like, what should the church be doing? And to me, the way that like my, my Chelsea self wants to interpret that is like big C church, like collective communal body. And I talked to so many evangelicals who think like I think, but no one says anything. And I don't mean that in like a bad judgmental way. It's scary and it's hard. And like, it is hard for me to do it. And I have the personality type that wants to, and it's still hard. So in my mind, I'm going to bring up another current event, like Beth Moore leaving the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention. There's so many things about that. But in my mind, I was like, wow, is she the first woman to do that? Are other women going to start speaking out? Like I actually have an op-ed written right now that is addressing all of the things that I wish conservative Christians, like particularly evangelicals could recognize that we are not doing well. And I haven't put that out yet because it's hard. So I think that we need to start uplifting voices. We need to start as a community, as a capital C church saying, what do we think? This isn't okay. Our norm is not going in a good direction. And also I'm going to add another layer onto it. 
I don't think, especially for non-denominational Christians and particularly evangelicals, I don't think we do church history very well. Mm -hmm. And this is something I talk a lot about with my Jewish friends to bring another anecdote in is that a lot of non-denominational evangelical Christians will come and sit down if they have an opportunity to with someone Jewish. And they might know about like certain types of theology and view Jewish people in a certain type of way. So a lot of us are like, oh, this is a cool opportunity when we get to talk to someone Jewish. And the Jewish person, like in this analogy that I often use is is the Christian comes and sits at a table and there's a blank piece of paper in front of them. They're excited to like write down some notes. They're like, you know, cool relationship is about to happen. The Jewish person walks into the room and drops a whole bunch of really heavy, old, old books that talk about the Inquisition, that talks about all of the times throughout history that they as a people have had Christians not be nice to them. And to me, like when we say, what can the church start doing? We need to do better church history and we need to do better uplifting of current voices when people have thoughts that are challenging. Mm. Thank you for that answer. Yeah. Appreciate it. Can we go back to the religious right and the moral majority? Because that, hearing you talk about it this time, like all kind of clicked into place because I think it was just less than a week ago I was thinking about the moral majority and how offensive that actually that actually is to call mm-hmm. our opinion the moral majority. Yeah. Um can you talk about that and maybe the nuance of us kind of acting like we want a Christian nation, a religious nation mm-hmm. when we don't want that um yeah. dictated. A friend of mine just said that a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. Yeah. I'd love to hear your take. So many things to that too. The first thing that jumps out in my mind is almost every single government course that I took at Liberty University, and I was a government major, politics and policy, almost every single class that I took talked about moral relativism because every class outside of just government did that. But the government classes particularly talked about American exceptionalism. And I had this like very proud, I don't even want to say past tense, but I'll phrase it that way for now. I had this very like, wow, proud, like America is an incredible place. Then the American dream and this and that, which absolutely is a narrative. And then all of a sudden when I bumped into people who were like, the American dream is actually really hard to pursue. Like everyone should be able to, and everyone is able to pursue that, but that's, that's something that's hard. And also like, there's a lot of stuff about American history that we don't include in our history books and that we don't talk about. And to say that like American exceptionalism America is a great country. I believe it is like one of the greatest countries in the world, if not the greatest country in the world. And also, where is the humility in our narrative of ourselves? Again, confirmation bias. Like, where Mm. is there room for America to grow? Where is there room for America to have hurt people? Where is there room for America to be a place that is more inclusive, more all of these things? And then when we add on top of that, that a whole bunch of Christians are trying to say America needs to be a Christian nation, which it is a Christian-inspired nation. We have all of these things. But something hard for me that has been a personal challenge is that it was framed to me that our country is great, moving on. And I met a whole Mm. lot of people who said, but what if I don't believe what you think? What if I grew up in in a different context? So maybe I'll jump in with two examples. There's a whole thing with like education, like prison pipelines in the black community where the type of education and the type of classes you take, like math classes, for example, when you're in middle school, predetermine the math classes you take when you're in high school. And then the way that your classes are, are set up for you in high school can be a determinant of if you go on to do 
um, like further education, whether it's trades or not. And there's also correlations, and this is something newer for me, but I'm starting to research it. There's also correlations between kids who get kicked out of school. Um, there's a word for it. What's the word? Expelled. There's a there's a, a correlation between, especially for inner city people, how many times someone gets expelled can correlate to their like optimism about their future. Mm-hmm. So 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 bigger picture, looking back at the moral majority, what's going on, and all of that stuff. To me, I am looking at the Republican Party right now, and this is again, I am a Republican. I'm a very proud Republican. I look at the leadership and I wonder, like, when I watched the last Republican um, national convention for the last election, how were guns being talked about? How was race being talked about? And then outside of just like the hyper politics, like, like today, I, I woke up this morning and I found out that yesterday eight people died in Indianapolis at a shooting. And I'm, I lived in Indiana and I'm a Hoosier. So that to me is like, that's hurtful. And yet also the cognitive dissonance, like the mental separation of not being able to hold that our country is really not okay right now. And then to have like a, a, a podium and a stage that doesn't even acknowledge that. But one of the things that I yeah. teach a lot when I, when I do civil discourse training that the, like the tactical skills of how to have these conversations is I always teach you do not ignore someone expressing pain. You don't have to agree with them. You don't even have to affirm them. But you can say like, wow, I can't imagine what that must have been like. That is a neutral right. statement. And I feel like the church, the Republican Party, the moral majority, all of these types of groups, when they say, if, if you don't think like us, you don't belong. Well, what do we do when we are a country that is a democratic country that is not forcing religion on people. We we, pr- we pride ourselves in being a country that is here for like religious liberty. And yet what does it mean when someone has religious liberty that doesn't agree with us? So to me, like this is where all of this depolarization stuff comes back together because we are not going to have a healthy democracy if we don't have room for people to be able to disagree respectfully. That was a whole tangent. Do I need to pull anything back in? <laughs> uh, I think what I want to pull in is just how the it's kind of the same conversation within the Republican Party and the church that we are uncomfortable with the questions mm-hmm. and we need to get real comfortable with the questions, be secure in our identity, be, be secure in our beliefs enough to say, hey, why do you believe what you believe? Um, how can I love you better? What words am I saying that might hurt you without getting... um the word not triggered but sensitive Mm -hmm. yeah about somebody else saying hey that was hurtful yeah and there's this whole thing um one of my friends that I do a lot of this training with he has a a whole thing he calls it the vicious cycle I don't have it exactly memorized off the top of my head but it starts with the second that someone is challenged we become self-absorbed and become defensive and that is actually something that is a, a, like a physiological trait that we can feel inside of our bodies when we start to like get a little stressed out, when we start to like feel a little bit sweaty, when we're like, oh my gosh, like that, that knee jerk reaction where we lean away, that is a moment where we're feeling challenged. And whenever we're in a conflict point, and a, a quote that I love to throw in whenever I can is that I believe that like conflict is often not about 
irreconcilable differences. Again, like I can sit down and actually have a, a civilized conversation with a pro-choice or as a pro-lifer. Conflict is often not about irreconcilable differences. It's about our ability to actually speak about those differences. Mm. And if we can't actually even talk about it, that's what our country is doing right now. Our country doesn't know how to talk to each other. Right. And that is not an okay place to be in. That's not an okay place for the church. It's not an okay place for the country. And something that you had said too, this is kind of a hot take and I'm recognizing that I'm saying it. And I, I mean, no like ill will in it. There is a very particular, because I talked about de-radicalization, studying cults. There is a particular thing with cult mentality when you are not allowed to question and challenge and any space now that I find myself in that tells me that I cannot question and challenge, I don't want to be in that space mm-hmm. at all. Just this week, I said to my husband, it's taken me a while to recognize, or it took me a while to be able to say what I grew up in, many people would describe as a cult. And I know that not everyone can identify with that and that's fine. But what's kind of been shocking is listening to others coming out of non-denominational churches and other evangelical spaces that our stories are so similar. Yeah. This is not isolated. That's the thing that, that where I said before that like how the church can like can heal and move forward, like uplifting those voices. One of the things that I didn't really expect, but that I now have seen with my Instagram is because I, I run a, a forum for the people that are listening where I'll pitch a question on in my Instagram story. I almost do nothing in the grid itself. People will then reply back to me. I black out their names and share. So there's almost an anonymous conversation that is going on. And one of the things that I have seen is women tell me that because of purity culture, they're not able to sleep with their husbands. Like there's a pelvic, like there's, a whole, there's a whole like definitional thing. I'm not going to get into that just for the graphic nature, but there's something called like pelvic floor or something, something. And like women are not able to relax physically to be able to, to, to be intimate with their husbands because there is this like anxiety around intimacy. So that's like a very particular like thing that the church could work on. And I think it's something where like what to what you're saying, there's a lot of examples around things that like a lot of us are feeling really hurt by. And the thing that is is frustrating to me to, to add another layer onto this is that we know there's so many people who feel this way. And people are still struggling with speaking up. And what does that say about our own system that we're in where we can't speak up? And yet mm-hmm. when we do speak, it's almost never a singular like experience. And that to me means there's a collective issue that is not being allowed to be recognized or is not being taken seriously. And then that's a point to me. And like I have a great individual relationship with God, I feel like. I do not have a great relationship with institutionalized religion. And that is one of my big issues with the evangelical church right now is there is almost no humility in it. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. You bring up that specific example about intimacy. I just, um, as of recording this, this week, I released an interview with Sheila Ray Gregoire. And she's talking about that. It is so frustrating to me that we can't acknowledge issues. Like, I don't even get that. That's the thing is like, but if we, but, but to, to our own point of confirmation by something like spill the table on us. So when you say it's so frustrating that we can't even like talk about this stuff, well, to talk about this stuff is to threaten someone because we're going to threaten reality. And that's a thing. And this is going to sound a little feministy. I still want to say it. There's a lot of conversations that I've been in the last few days where people are saying, okay, well, what, 
what does culture teach women about how they show up and what does culture teach men about like how they like like hold space like so to be more pointed a lot of people will say and I'm actually starting to get on this train right now that women are conditioned to give up space and to listen whereas men are conditioned to take up space and to speak So one of the things that I do whenever I'm in professional settings, again, I co-founded a company, I've had high titles, like all of those things. When I am in rooms, something that I always am intentional about doing is finding the person who has not yet spoken and saying like, hey, hey, I just want to ask like if you have a thought that like that, that is inclusivity. Mm. And I think that that to me is like when, when a lot of people from the conservative Christian backgrounds hear like diversity, we hear equity, we hear like inclusion that can feel super lefty and I understand why, but those words in and of themselves are not lefty words and they are concepts that are important. And there could be a conversation about what Christians think about inclusion and about equity and about diversity. And diversity could Mm -hmm. even mean women sitting at a table, like the ghastly thought. And if a woman (laughs) finally sat at a table where decisions were being made, maybe she would bring up, the purity culture and the guys couldn't ignore it. Sure. Yep. I think we just covered a lot to think yeah. about. <laughs> so many things. Things. We could keep going for forever. And yes. also maybe we shouldn't. I don't know. <laughs> I would love to know if you have anything else that's on your mind that you want to um, tie a thread together or you have a final thought. Um, I think we've given a lot of action steps and practical things too, but what do you think? Um, Off top of my head, I would like to give a quick summary because again, I like things to be digestible for people. We used a lot of psychology words and we used a lot of sociology words and we talked a little bit about like physio. We talked about like a lot of things. Everything comes down to the point or to the, to the fact, like the, the reality. I'm going to walk out of my house tomorrow, later today. And so are you. There are going to be people outside of our house and we cannot control what is in the mind of those people. And if we want to have a democratic country, we have to respect difference, which puts the pressure on us to be able to have those conversations. Mm. It can't just be a finger wiggle again, saying everyone else needs to be better. This is something individually that all of us can work on. And also collectively, there's a lot too. Um, But that's what I would boil all of this depolarization down to is like, are you as an individual able to self-monitor enough to have a conversation with someone that prioritizes their well-being as long as you're safe and secure and all that? Um, That's kind of my summary. And then a thought just because I want to be creative and fun. I don't have anything, but the first thing that comes to mind right now is I just, I think exploration is beautiful. And I think that I have been in a lot of spaces that have told me exploration is not okay. So if I can affirm to anybody who is listening from any background at all, it is a good thing to explore. Mm, Thank you. Where can people follow you? Where do you want to clubhouse Instagram? Yeah. Um, My Instagram is at Chels, C-H-E-L-S, Andrews. And then it's also my clubhouse. And those are honestly the two that I'm the most active on. I kind of locked down my Facebook and I don't really do Twitter. So those would be good. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for the work that you're doing. You you make a difference, really. Seriously. Okay, so, so, so that's nice and thank you. And also to flip it back, which is the cheesy way that all the podcasts end. <laughs> we're talking about how people don't speak up and you're someone who's speaking up. 
So like I can be the person that comes on here and like says interesting things, but you're the one who is facilitating a platform. You're the one who has people that follow and trust you. And I think that that is really beautiful. And I encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Will do. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, you can reach out to Lois and Emily at hello at sisterseeker.com. And if you enjoyed today's episode, it would mean the world to us if you would consider supporting the RFWP. You can go to patreon.com slash sisterseeker. Another way to show your support is by leaving us a review. This helps get this cause and this message to more women like you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for being here, friend.